So many years back when I was a young man, I may not look like an old man, but I was younger. An acquaintance of mine gave me a heavy silver bracelet uh, that I wore whenever I could. I actually thought it was very cool. In fact, my son reminded me of this because we were talking about bracelets recently, and I was telling him about my bracelet. So I kept it well polished, and it was actually a work of art. If you saw it, you'd ask me, where did you get it? So those were the early years when I had begun my walk uh, with Christ. And so one day our youth, our young adults team in the church I used to go to arranged a weekend retreat out of town, which was starting on a Friday evening and going all the way to Sunday afternoon. And so I went for that with my bracelet. I, I didn't leave it behind. And at that time I was struggling trying to understand Christian fundamentals and, and just what is this faith about? Uh, who is this God? What is salvation? What are all these things? And so on this particular retreat, when I went, um, when I got there on Friday, <clears throat> I was feeling very lethargic. Actually, I thought maybe I shouldn't go for this retreat because I, I was just feeling out of sorts. But I went anyway. Uh, maybe it was more peer pressure than anything else. Peer pressure to go for God's things is good peer pressure. Let it affect you. Let it influence you. So on the Saturday morning, we had the first morning session, and we were asked to take time out. Everyone take time out and spend some time meditating on what we'd been taught. And then spend time praying about it. We were given about two hours. So everyone went and looked for a private spot. Uh, I too went and got a spot near some fence somewhere, as far away from everyone. And I sat down very tired, very sleepy, very lethargic, and tried to start meditating. And honestly, I was, I was dozing. I was falling asleep. And I asked God, God, how am I going to pull off two hours if I'm so sleepy? How am I going to do this? Help me, because we, we, I'm trying to understand this whole thing about meditating as a Christian. So after I'd been dozing for about 15 minutes, the thought popped into my mind. It's the bracelet you're wearing. So I was like, huh? in fact, I snapped into attention. Eh? And then I heard another voice. You're wearing a charm. And that's why you're finding it very hard to be part of this retreat and you're feeling so sleepy. And the voice told me, remove it and throw it into the forest beyond the fence you're sitting. Now, even in those early days, by God's grace, I began learning how God speaks to me. If you've heard me preach before, nowadays I keep telling you God speaks to me when I'm showering. Uh, but those days, it was before I had started showering. So he spoke to me in different ways. And I knew that voice could be nothing but the Holy Spirit. And my beautiful bracelet, which I had polished for the retreat, I removed it and hurled it into the forest beyond the fence. And five minutes later, I was as awake as anything. 
fully re-energized and ready for my time with God. Now, as you're listening to me, I wonder what you're thinking. Are you thinking there's a lunatic in front there? Uh, somebody deluded? That was hearing my own thoughts and having my own uh, imaginations? Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So when you got back after the retreat, I tried to do some research on my bracelet. And I learned that that kind of bracelet usually is dedicated in a shrine before they are released into the market. It's crafted, then it goes to this shrine, and the wearer is meant to wear it for protection. Now, just for the avoidance of doubt, the shrine is not a Christian shrine, just to be clear. <laughs> and after I found this out and thought about the person who gave it to me and their background, I was left in no doubt that that bracelet could well have been a dedicated one. It was a charm. Two days ago, that was on um, Friday, I was talking to my business partner about one of our clients who he primarily deals with. She'd come into the office that morning, on Friday morning, and they'd spent some time together, and she told him an interesting story, interesting depending on where you're seated. She told him that a few weeks ago, while asleep in the dead of night, she heard music and drumming downstairs at her house. So she walked downstairs, she's a tough woman, switched on the lights, and there was nothing to be seen, and the music had stopped. She went back to sleep. A few days later, she heard the same thing. She walked down. Again, there was nothing. The music had stopped. She switched off the lights and went back upstairs. And then she heard the noise the same night. She walked down. Same thing, nothing. But as she started turning to go upstairs, a voice told her, check the calendar. She was like, huh? Check the calendar. She went to where they have a calendar in her sitting room. And to her amazement, the picture on the calendar for that particular uh, month was a music group that had singers and drummers. She took that calendar uh, in the dead of night and immediately destroyed it. There's been no more singing and drums in her house at night. I gave my life to Christ uh, 32 years ago. And in fact, uh, Janelle, I have to thank you for reminding me, because Janelle was marking her 40th birthday since she was born again uh, last Sunday. And I asked myself, actually, how long have I been born again? And to my utter shock, I have been a Christian for 32 years. I have made it this far, <laughs> by God's grace. And as I've grown in the faith, the issue or question of spiritual warfare has been a key one to me. 
and particularly because of the different spiritual giftings that the Lord has bestowed upon me. And as worked with different people, there are those who outrightly, uh, when I meet them, I outrightly will say, I think you're in the depth of warfare because of one thing or another, because they are not aware. But for others, I hesitate because I don't know where they are spiritually. I don't know what their theology is. I don't know what they believe in. So those ones, I keep quiet and I pray for them. So I recognize that as I'm speaking this morning, that we are all at different spaces. Probably we have different theological questions, positions, and even on Ephesians 6:12 about principalities and all those things, we probably look at it differently. So because of this, my message this morning is not intended to get into a debate with anyone. I'm not even trying to convince you of anything. But I'm sharing my Christian journey with you. And my prayer this week has been for KVC corporately and individually that God will meet you personally this morning as I speak. Where you're at, that he'll reveal to you what he needs you to know or understand so that you can be better equipped as his child and fellow soldier in the kingdom. But I also want again to say, today we sang about Jesus, that he is the one. So even as I talk about spiritual warfare, please remember that because of Jesus, you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That is what I want you guys to keep having in your mind as I speak. This week I was listening to John Corson. He's a preacher I listen to every morning as I'm driving to work on radio, on Hope FM. And he gave a great tip to his audience to help them verify the soundness of his preaching or any preaching you hear. And I want to share those tips because as I struggled to put this message together, I wondered how will it be received? And John Corson today, uh, I think it was Wednesday, uh, gave me tips that I think are so useful for you to have as I speak. He said that if you're listening to a sermon, whenever you listen to a sermon, ask three things concerning what you're listening to. One, was the message you've had exemplified by Jesus while he was on earth? Was it exemplified by Jesus while he was on earth? Secondly, was that message extended in the book of Acts? Was it exemplified by Jesus? Was it extended in the book of Acts? And thirdly, was the message you had expanded by Paul in his letters? Exemplified by Jesus while he was on earth, extended in the book of Acts, and expanded by Paul in his letters. If that message meets those three things, then it is a sound message. And I love that. And I thought, let me give you that tip so that you can hold my messages uh, to that standard. I've shared before that my whole journey with warfare started with skepticism. The whole question of the Holy Spirit and warfare uh, which meant that there has to be an opposing force out there, somewhere. And I kept wondering, what is this force? 
And over the years, my engagements with that other side has had me in interesting and exciting encounters. So what I'm sharing this morning is not theory at all. And I want to ask you to invite the Lord into your own journey of understanding. And I imagine that for some of you, even the thought of inviting the Lord to help you understand these things makes you break out into a cold sweat. But all I can tell you is that it's that cold sweat when you hear about warfare that Ephesians is addressing this morning. The NKJV in Ephesians 6.11 asks us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Different versions of the Bible have translated this word wiles as schemes, deceits, tricks, deceptive tactics or just tactics, artifices, evil tricks, strategies, stratagems, evil plans, scheming deceitfulness or ambushings of the devil. Basically, it's all negative. The wiles of the devil are what will make you falter when I invite you, when I ask you to invite God to take you on a personal journey of discovery because that's exactly where the devil wants you to be. He wants you to be afraid. He wants you to be skeptical. He wants you to be scared because then he has one up on you. And I want to explore a few of the devil's strategies because there are just too many to, to go through in one day because he's been at it for so long. He's a master. So, and he keeps refining them. So I'll just pick up about three uh, just to give you an example and for you to look into your own life and see are there any wiles that are affecting me. Second Corinthians 11.3 says this, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And this is a fantastic strategy by the devil because it's basically aimed at preventing us from accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. In the same way that the serpent went and convinced Eve that what God had said could not be the total truth. And then it led her to eating of the fruit and so sinning. The same crafty serpent as a way of making the gospel of Christ not look as simple as it is. Jesus says this, confess your sins, confess your sins to me. Repent of them, accept me as Lord and Savior, and that you're saved. But what does the devil do? He'll convince you that with all the atrocities you've been involved in, it can't be that simple. You must first stop your sinful ways, and only then can you invite Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior. What the devil won't tell you is that in and of yourself, you'll never be able to stop sinning. You'll never stop your sinfulness because your flesh is weak. You need the Holy Spirit. And once you've accepted him into your life, then he comes in and helps you to overcome sin because then you're more than a conqueror in Jesus because he's your Lord and Savior. But even when you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, the crafty serpent 
and this is what Paul is telling the Corinthians in verse, in verse 4, will send preachers to you who will preach another Jesus from the one they have preached and lead them to receive another spirit or a different gospel from the one true gospel. And this is the while of strategy or strategy of deception that the devil uses against you. And Paul is therefore urging us to take up the whole armor to be able to stand up against it. So when I'm facing false teaching, false preaching, when I look at the various pieces of armor that Paul has mentioned here, and I'm trying to see which piece of armor will help me to fight this while, I would think that it's the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet protects any deception that tries to convince me that either I am not saved or that despite accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, somehow I have lost that salvation. And then the sword of the spirit, in support of that helmet, then puts John 10, 28 in my heart, which declares, and I give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And so I'll confidently and authoritatively inform the devil that anyone includes the devil. And can he please move on, as I have no time for such stories, because I am secure in Jesus. Another crafty strategy he uses is to convince us that we are okay and can get away with it. Matthew 7:21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. James 1:22 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So what's the strategy here? The devil seeks to convince you that it's okay to look the part, but not, not mean it. Read all the self-help manuals. Listen to all the podcasts that make you into a decent human being. Practice certain personal routines every day to set your mind right. You know those things of you wake up in the morning and say, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, five times, and you'll do it. Arrange your furniture in the house using a compass so that you align yourself with the stars. Do everything else but pursue Jesus with as much diligence as the other things you're doing, but it's okay. And yes, when it becomes a bit tight, go to church, get prayed over, and get a quick fix and go back to your things. The devil's deception in this way is also meant to blindfold you into not realizing that there are dire repercussions, dire consequences to staying away from the straight and narrow path. We read in Galatians 6, 7 to 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's Jesus in Matthew 16, 26. The only profit to the man 
which the devil is keen for you not to realize, is joining the devil in eternal condemnation and exchanging eternal life offered by Jesus with eternal condemnation, which is the devil's lot. So knowing about this deception, that it's okay, what do you then do? Part of the armor is to stand, having guarded your waist with truth. And for me, Galatians 2.20 is perfect truth in such an instance. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then with that truth, Matthew 7, 13 to 14, then becomes my life. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So it's not okay to play Christian. It's not okay to be religious. It's not okay to be just a good person and very charitable in nature. It's not okay to look the part. It only becomes okay when you worship God in your life in spirit and in truth. When Marel preached from Ephesians 3, he told us to be filled with God because what fills you affects you. When you're filled with God, you will not be play-acting Christianity but living out a Christian life. And that is what is okay, not what the devil wants you to believe. Let me throw in one more possible while that the devil uses before I move on. He's a master of camouflage. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines camouflage as follows. In military science, the art and practice of concealment and visual deception in war it is the means of defeating enemy observation by concealing or disguising installations, personnel, equipment, and activities. For purposes of this message, the camouflage, I learned that new word, the guy who camouflages is a camouflage. <laughs> the camouflage is Satan. It talks about enemy observation. The enemy is you, okay? The camouflage is Satan, the enemy is you. So going back to my bracelet, for instance, if camouflage is concealing or disguising installations, personnel, equipment, and activities, in my case, camouflage had been used to disguise my bracelet to look like a very beautiful ornament for my wrist but it was a charm through which I carried my enemy everywhere I went for him to work against me. And the devil's camouflage is particularly sensitive and particularly unique to the individual that you are. In case you didn't know this, from the day you were born, the devil has been studying you, okay? He's like a coach studying an opposing team. He knows your strengths and weaknesses, your character traits, your likes and dislikes, 
things that you find irresistible. And this camouflage will always be around those things. So consequently, without the Holy Spirit's discernment, you are a sitting duck ready to be taken out. And the sole purpose of the camouflage is to demolish you. Paul gives a good example of this camouflage in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, where he says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So as part of the armor available to God, by God for me, I need to constantly wear the shield of faith. That's Ephesians 6.16, which Paul tells me I will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, which he'll throw at me when I am unaware, and which are camouflaged. In my case, in a simple thing like a bracelet, or in our client's case, as a calendar. When I cried out to God to help me when I was lethargic at the retreat, it was my faith telling God that only he could get me out of that lethargy. And his revealing to me about the bracelet I was wearing was a shield I needed to protect myself from the charm that I'd been carrying around uh, all along. I need to say this. One of the things that worries me about some of the activities I see Christians uh, getting themselves into, and to avoid controversy, I will not name them. But I'll ask you to audit what you're up to, what you're doing, week in, week out. It's because I feel some of these things are camouflages of the devil. And I'll say this, before you get into any activity that is meant to improve who you are, make you a better person, and any similar intentions. Could I ask you to first investigate its origins and verify that they are biblically fit? You'll never catch me walking across fire coals. When you read in the Bible about fire and coals, it's always demonic. So I've always wondered about this self-help team building thing where you're asked to walk across fire coals. I've always had question marks on that one. Think about that. So I've just given you a snippet of what a while can be, what the devil uses to get you, and so it's up to you to examine your own life and see, are there any wiles? Ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me, is there anything around me that could be used by the devil to affect me adversely? And when you've identified them, if you identify them, then you can put on the full armor and deal with them decisively. So after being told to stand against the wiles of the devil, we are then told in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In John 17, 15, Jesus prayed for his disciples saying, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus was aware that there was evil in the world. Is it any wonder then that in 1 Peter 5.8, we are asked to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I was thinking about this verse, and I thought about animals in the national park. And I actually am convinced that the animals in the park believe in 1 Peter 5.8 more than we do. If you look at those animals, if you watch antelopes, giraffes, gazelles, whatever, at any one point when they are out in the park, there's always one of them on guard. If they're at a watering hole, as some are drinking, others are watching. And I think, I hope I got a, yeah, the giraffe, for instance, or the antelopes. If they are grazing, some are on alert and they keep changing duties so that one munches for five minutes, looks up, the one who's looking up starts munching. They finish, look up, the other one continues. Even when they are sleeping, they don't all sleep at the same time. They do so in shifts, so that at all times they are on guard against any lion looking for a potential meal. What about us? Quite the contrary. Have you ever heard the saying that a Christian, I'm sure you've heard this one, a Christian is that person who sees the devil behind every bush. Have you ever heard that? Or that you're being too super spiritual if you keep talking about spiritual warfare. In the book of Job 1, 6, and 7, there's an exchange between God and Satan that is worth considering. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. That lion mentioned in 1 Peter 5, 8 is the devil. Do you know what Satan was doing, going to and fro, walking back and forth? He was looking for someone to pounce on and devour. Has he stopped doing so? I don't think so. He's still at it. So we do the devil a great favor when we agree that there is no devil behind every bush, because that lets our guard down and he can attack us with ease. The antelopes or zebras do not stand guard because they can see a lion coming. They don't stand guard because there's a lion coming. They stand guard at all times because they have no idea which direction the lion will come from. Because he could be well camouflaged in the long grass near the watering hole, and waiting for their attention to be diverted for him to pounce. So personally, I am happy to be identified as the guy who sees the devil behind every bush, or that I'm super spiritual. If that will keep me alert, fully armored, and ready to resist, call me all the names you want to call me. I'm cool. First Peter 5.9 continues by urging us to resist him, steadfast in the faith. James 4, 7 advises us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. My view on this and from many examples and examples in my life 
you're better off being constantly in resistance mode against the devil so that he can stay away from you. Let me say that again. You're better off being constantly in resistance mode against the devil so that he can stay away from you. The example I give, I hope Noel is here. It will help him perhaps uh, when he's trying to read from his phone the next time. I think you've heard me sharing before. Before I became tech savvy and uh, got myself a tablet, I used to preach with notes. And so I'd prepare my sermon, and then on Friday evening, I would print out my notes in the office. And it always happened that Every time I went to print my final sermon notes so that I can put them together and come to church on Sunday, my printer in the office would always fail. I think you've heard me say this before. And so every Friday, if I'm preaching on Sunday, when I go, I press print, it jumps. It became so rampant that my secretary, anytime on Friday I was printing and it didn't work, she'd ask me, are you preaching on Sunday? She'd actually gotten to know that if this guy is doing any printing on Friday and it's jamming, it has to be his sermon. And she drew my attention to that pattern. So when I, from the day she pointed that out to me, if I was preaching on Sunday and I go to work on Friday morning, usually I would get to the office before everybody else, I used to open the office door and walk straight to the printer. And I would pray over that printer. I would bind any demon that is trying to jam my printer on that day, and I'd give it notice, but there I'm preaching on Sunday. So today is not the day you're going to disturb me. So in the name of Jesus, I cancel all attempts for you to jam the printer. I cancel Kenya Power from giving us a blackout on this day, because that also used to happen. <laughs> You are going to print when I will press print. And guys, my printer never disturbed me after that. Never, ever again. So for Noel, if you know you are going to preach, to read as your Bible from your phone, bind that thing before you come <laughs> in the morning. Bind it. Because the name of Jesus is what? Is above everything. Let me give you another quick example. This is close to me because it affects my family. My wife and daughter are sitting there. Some years back, it occurred to me that every Sunday morning before church was the best time for us to have a nice fight at home. Wake up in the morning, one thing or another will lead to a fight. Now, the main one used to be about getting to church late. Now, for me, I believe that I am never late to court. If I know I have a court session in the morning, I'm never late. Actually, I'm never late to anything. If you know me, you know I am never late. So for me, it has never been optional to come late to church. I always think if I'll be on time because of a humanly judge, there is no other appointment that's more important for me during the week than my appointment with God on a Sunday. So for me, I have to come to church on time on Sunday. Now for me, coming to church on time is not coming at 10 a.m. 
My coming to church on time is getting here at 9.50 at the latest. Okay? So, we wake up in the morning. I'm busy saying, guys, we're getting late, we're getting late, we're getting late. A nice, fine row starts, and we all jump into the car with long lips. Nobody is talking to anybody, and we've come to church. Now, to be fair to my family, the disagreeable, sulky, long-lipped guy is normally me, not them. So when this dawned on me some years back, I told the devil, you know, I've had enough of your tricks, and I will not be going to church in a sulky mood. So you will not make me uh, get late. You will not make anybody in my family get late. And even if we are late, I will still go to church in good spirits. And Faith and Wanji, my wife and daughter, you can testify. I don't think I come to church with long lips anymore. <laughs> I don't. Am I stretching this too far? For me, let the Holy Spirit decipher it for you. I'm just sharing my journey with you. So Ephesians 6.12 goes on to say this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul adds in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So normally Ephesians 6.12 is read successively together with the other verses up to verse 20 that talk about the armor of God. And most preachers will usually focus on the armor and not Ephesians 6.12. And I remember I had preached on Ephesians 6 some time back, and I went back to my archives, and actually was amazed that the last time I preached from Ephesians 6 was in July 2016, six years ago. And I preached from this passage, and I briefly touched on verse 12, but focused on the armor of God. And as I was preparing this message, I asked myself if I've ever had a sermon breaking down what principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness are. And I concluded I've never. I asked my wife, have you ever had a sermon on those four? And neither could she. And so I thought, I think it's time I tried to break it down. And my personal work has been giving me insights into this. And I wondered if my congregants at KVC would like to know. And then I thought even if they don't want to know, I will still tell them. <laughs> so you're stuck with me. I realized that if you don't have an idea of what is facing you, then it's easy not to always wear the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 13 to 20, or take it seriously. And so you leave it behind occasionally, and then you expose yourselves to the grave danger from the devil. In my sermon of 2016, I quoted from Dr. Lloyd-Jones' book, Warfare, where he writes this. I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We've all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. 
We are ignorant of this objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. And I don't think this has changed since 2016, so it's still an appropriate quotation. My view is that many of the battles we are facing, many of the battles we are losing as Christians, are attributable to the fact that we do not know who or what we are fighting, and so we need to get an awareness of this, which then enables us to apply the armor of God appropriately. So let me give you a silly example. If you don't know how a forest fire burns and how to stop it, you may encounter a forest fire and you try to blow it out because when you last blew on a candle, it went out. You will not take out a forest fire by blowing with your mouth. And Jesus illustrated this well in Matthew 17, 21, when he told his disciples who were unable to heal a boy <clears throat> that the demon had caused to have epilepsy, that the prayer, that the demon came out not just by prayer, but by fasting as well. They had tried to pray to cast out the demon, but they couldn't. And Jesus told them some of this come out only by prayer and fasting. If you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, Peter asked Ananias if he had brought forward all the proceeds of what they had sold. Ananias answered that he had. And in verse 3, Peter tells him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Straight up, Peter had discerned Satan's hand, and which is why Peter's lie detector found Ananias out. About five weeks ago, because it was sometime, I think, early April, I was in a tense family meeting trying to deal with succession issues, probate issues. My clients were in a polygamous, uh, their father was polygamous, had died. <clears throat> and I was representing one side, and there was a lawyer representing the other family. Excuse me. <clears throat> so the meeting comprised <clears throat> stepbrothers and stepsisters. Now, it's my habit uh, from just experience that any time I'm getting into a meeting, in the office, no matter what kind of meeting it is. I commit it to God. I ask the Lord to be in charge of that meeting. I ask the Lord to establish his authority over everyone in that meeting. And then I bind all forces of wickedness that may attempt to be part of that meeting. And I also always pray for spiritual discernment that when I go into the meeting, I will see what is going on uh, not just what's on the face of it. So I, I prayed over this meeting, and as the meeting went on, the other side uh, was being represented by the eldest son who I'd never met before. And he was the most pleasant person to listen to. He addressed my clients, and, and remember it's a polygamous family, so it's this side against this side. And he was addressing my clients and myself with great decorum. He was polite, used all the right words, and he stated that his greatest desire 
was for all of them to live harmoniously and to be amicable, and that we'd agree uh, to different things that we're discussing uh, that morning. <clears throat> but as I listened to him, that voice that always speaks to me suddenly whispered, be careful of this spirit of Jezebel. And that was enough to snap me into attention <laughs> for the rest of the meeting. So we went on with the meeting. It was inconclusive. And they asked my clients to remain behind to debrief before they left. So when the others left, I asked them to tell me about that particular individual. So I was not shocked, actually, when they told me they were completely shocked at what he was saying. Because just three weeks before, he had attacked my client with a kitchen knife telling him, I want to kill you because you're refusing to agree to my distribution. The warning I got was totally, purely on point. That was really a prowling lion in my presence, in our presence. So likewise for you and I, we do need to know what prowls around like a roaring lion, what's waiting to pounce on us, and Ephesians 6, 12 then tells us, these are principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And a critical thing for you to remember is that, yes, you're in the flesh, but the war is not in the flesh, because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, when you believe that there's a devil, when you believe that it's wrong to think there's a devil behind every bush, the risk of you fighting the devil in the flesh is very high. And when you fight the devil in the flesh, it's like shadow boxing. You know shadow boxing? You're just punching in the air, achieving nothing. But you are shadow boxing the devil. Him, he is not shadow boxing you. He's landing punches where it hurts most. So you must, you must move beyond the flesh into the spiritual by relying on the Holy Spirit. And so as I come to an end, I want to give a short summary of what principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness are. Now my hope with this summary is that it will bring a hunger for all of us to seek to grow deeper in these matters so that we can better be informed and so become more effective warriors in the kingdom. Now, C.S. Lewis said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall in our thinking about devils. So one error is to disbelieve in their existence. You don't believe this thing about demons and all those things. But the other error is to believe in their existence, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So it's a good warning. Both extremes can affect your life as a Christian. Remember what I say, Jesus is above everything. That you have to always know that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. So you can't live your life just trying to see where the devils are. You walk your life with your life in the confidence, authority, power, and strength of Jesus. 
but you walk with your spiritual antenna up so that when the devil is there, you identify him and you pounce on him and defeat him. I also want to add that many of us exhibit so much fear of the devil's kingdom. It's almost as if you think the devil has equal power with God. And so you, want not, you don't even want him to know you are around because you don't want him to mess with you. And yet he is powerless. He is powerless. I came across a fantastic uh, verse in Revelation 21 to 3. I'll read uh, just as an aside. It's a quick sidebar. Revelation 21 to 3 we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, this is what I want you to understand, and I hope you've seen it as you're reading this verse. Do you notice who is dealing with the dragon? It's only an angel who takes hold of the devil. An angel, a mere angel binds him for a thousand years and casts him into the bottomless pit. In Hebrews 2.9, we are told that God made Jesus a little lower than the angels, meaning Jesus is already above the angels, meaning that the angel is low, and yet it is that angel who casts the devil into the bottomless pit. God cannot even be bothered with something like that. He's too small. He's, he's powerless before God. So what I'm trying to make out is a convincing case to the doubters that God is the only power. He's the only God. He is matchless. His son conquered the devil's kingdom. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we have no need to fear, but engage in warfare from the vantage point of knowing that we have won. So, definitions. I picked some definitions from an interesting book I came across by J.P. Timmons. It's titled Mysteries of the Dark Kingdom, and I found those definitions useful for this purpose. So, principalities. Principalities are spirit beings, high-ranking evil spirits that control the world for Satan. And you'll find them conducting their business, their devious schemes in religion, finances, politics, the occult, and sex-related matters. And they seek to promote false religions to turn people away from God and instead lead them into idolatry. And yet Exodus 22 to 5 says this, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. And then in Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to Satan, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Principalities seek to pollute human beings with whatever is at their disposal. 
And so they'll seek to entice you with all forms of vices to achieve this end. The principalities are responsible for causing war and death. And a good example of a principality is the beast in the book of Revelation. That is a principality. What are powers? I think a good summary of powers is that their main objective is to get us to believe in imag imaginary powers other than the only power that is God Almighty. The powers want to convince human beings that there's an, another all-powerful force available. And you don't need to bother going to God, who is the only God. And the occult falls in the category of these powers. And so, any person or see into the future, give wealth, fertility, or demand that you do certain rituals, or engage in immoral acts with a justification as to why they are okay, there is no justification to immorality. If you're in any of those things, you're probably confronting these powers. And in particular, be very alert to anything that sheds blood. Powers are very keen for human blood to be shed. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 16, 11 to 12. How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Be careful of anything that wants to take your eyes away from God. The rulers of the darkness of this age. For me, a good summary of this is witchcraft. And the rulers of this dark age, of the darkness of this age, are usually witches or wizards who are demonic spirit-possessed humans who claim to do all manner of things, including leaving their bodies and traveling around the world. So stay away from witchcraft. In Acts 8, 9-24, we read of a sorcerer called Simon, who practiced fantastic sorcery and claimed that he was great. And the people of Samaria gave heed to him and said of him, a sorcerer, this man is the great power of God. And of course, it was all witchcraft. And later in Acts, we read Paul, uh, Peter rebuking him. He had believed in Jesus. But he wanted to buy the power they had where when they prayed and laid hands on you, the Holy Spirit came upon you. And Peter told him that he had neither part nor portion in that matter because his heart was not right in the sight of God. The rulers of the darkness of this age are only interested in themselves and want spiritual ability to advance themselves alone. And finally, spiritual hosts of wickedness. Spiritual hosts of wickedness comprise all the dark spiritual forces commanded by Satan. And like their name suggests, they host wickedness and will operate by causing disease, demonic possession, afflictions, bad habits, and death. Let me ask the worship team to come up.
So what the spiritual hosts of wickedness aim to do is to keep Christians busy dealing with the things I've mentioned, diseases, demonic possession, afflictions, bad habits, death. Keep you busy with these things and away from spending time with God. For instance, the minute you bend your head to pray, you suddenly remember there's an email you didn't send when you're in the office. You immediately pause the email, go to send the email to come back later. What happens when you get onto your inbox? You find there are other 10 mails that all have that irritating red asterisk. Urgent. So what do you do? Let me attend to this before I go back to prayer. You never pray. So the spiritual hosts of wickedness, they lie in wait for you, and you actually welcome them into your life. To use a well-known example, addiction. The minute you get on your gadget and open a pornographic video, you're opening the door for the demon of lust to come in. And once it gets in, you're in trouble. So these hosts wait for you to open gateways for them. So be careful what you're getting yourself into. Luke 9, 1 to 2. This is Jesus. He then called his 12 disciples together and gave them the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Jesus recognized the presence of spiritual wickedness in this world and so gave his disciples authority over them in his name. That authority and power is available to us as well. I want to end with an ending from my sermon in 2016, which I think is still the best summary of this passage. They are the words of William Garnall, a Puritan minister who wrote a book, The Christian in Complete Armor. He wrote this book in 1655, would you imagine? He says this, in heaven, we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, they, the armor, are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. In this armor, we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance. For the saints' sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture to creep on a sleeping lion. Every fly dares to venture to creep on a sleeping lion. So you sleep, you let your guard down. The powers, the principalities, the spiritual hosts of wickedness shall land on you. Shall we pray?